Hey y'all! Welcome to Wander, Forage, and Wildcraft. I'm Abby Artemisia of The Wander School. Each episode, I bring you stories, tips, and tricks from foragers and wildcrafters around the world to empower you on your wild path. Please remember to practice safe foraging by being 100% positive of your identification before consuming anything wild. Happy listening! Come on, everyone, and gather around. Listen to the soothing in this sound. I'm here to tell you that medicine don't come from a pill, it grows in the ground. The medicine we need grows all around us. Welcome to episode three. Today, I'm here with my good friend Becky Byer of Blood and Spicebush School of Old Craft and our very exciting collaboration for next year, the Sassafras School, which she'll be talking about a little bit more. Becky is a folk herbalist forager, Appalachian folk magic practitioner, and all-around awesome person. (laughs) (laughs) And she lives right here in the Asheville, North Carolina area. Hi, Becky. Hi, Abby. Thanks How are for you? having me. <laughs> You're I'm really welcome. great. Really great. I'm so grateful to have you here today. Oh, yay. I'm so it's, glad to be here. Especially since we're doing all of these collaborations together. It's mm-hmm. so nice to have you on. Thank you. Yeah, I'm super excited about it. Yeah. Okay, well, let's jump right in. Can you tell everybody a little bit about what you do in your daily life? Mm-hmm. Totally. So I have run Blood and Spice Bush school, I guess, semi full time for the past two ish years. Um, I started it as a blog in 2014 and I started teaching a little bit here and there, mostly craft classes like spoon carving and basket making. And then I started teaching more plant based classes. Um, and now I get to do it almost full time and I spend the rest of my time teaching for No Taste Like Home which is a local wild food foraging tour company. And so I get to teach just wild foods to those folks in three-hour classes. And you can see more about that at notastelikehome.org if you're ever in our area and you want to go foraging with us. That's great that you get to do all of that full time. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. Definitely doesn't make the big bucks, but it's super, (laughs) super meaningful and fun. Yeah. And it's really great. And I also do a lot of, I lecture occasionally at, AB Tech and local colleges or Appalachian State University do a little bit of academic work. Still, I just finished my master's in Appalachian studies in May. Also a great way to make the big bucks. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm having a lot of fun with that. Yeah. So that's good too. Well, congratulations on that. And Thank it's you. always great to see people supporting themselves doing this work and Of course, we're all grateful to have more foraging educators in the world. (laughs) There's not that many of us. It's true. (laughs) So how did you get started foraging? I got started foraging. I started when I was 20 or 19. I moved to Vermont and I started studying organic agriculture. 
And I was really interested at that time. I had worked in living history, which is like recreational historical farming. And because I'm a huge nerd and uh, like a Ren Fair kid, but like 1890s, you know, it's like <laughs> totally different. But, um, and I really was interested in draft horse farming and a lot of like old technologies like that. And I, I, when I moved to Asheville after I graduated with that degree, I met the primitive skills community and the farming staff was always hand in hand with that. And I realized we were throwing away a lot of plants that I had like thought I saw in a book that you could eat that or you know, a friend from a primitive skills gathering would be like, oh yeah, you can, you know, eat dandelion leaves. And I was like, cool. I want to see you do it first, you know? <laughs> so, and then I started an apprenticeship with Natalie Bogwalker of Wild Abundance in 2011. Mm -hmm. And that was when I really started like eating wild food all the time because she was showing me how to do it. And I felt it was great having a woman a mentor who was at that time, like in her thirties and was like super powerful and badass. Yeah. She's just a really cool lady. And, um, that's Scorpio fire, you know, and <laughs> she really got me less like fearful and more confident in wild mm -hmm. foraging. And then I guess I just like, started doing it. I was just kind of, I'd take a class here and there at a primitive skills gathering or, you know, read a book or this and that. And then I lived primitively in a tent for two years and foraged one of my landmates, my friend Miranda, she really showed me a lot too, because she was a much more experienced forager. And then actually getting the job with No Taste Like Home, I learned so much by shadowing people like you, who I, <laughs> how we met uh, as a tour guide as well. And shadowing people on the tours while I was learning how to give them, I learned so much more because mm -hmm. I got to shadow so many wonderful foragers in our area. We're really lucky. We live in such a hub. So. We are really lucky. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have to tell a story about Becky now and embarrass her just a little What did bit. I do now? <laughs> you know this one. Which one is it? But the first time I met Becky, she showed up to shadow me on a tour for No Taste Like Home. And I totally thought she was just like any other trainee and, you know, knew just a little bit maybe about wild plants. And then after we finished the walk, she was like, oh, yeah, I'm in school at Upstate and learning all this great ethnobotany. And I do this and I do that and I do this other thing. <laughs> and I was just like in awe, like, oh, my God, you just went on this tour with me and I had no idea. And <laughs> so Becky and I have become great friends ever since then. And I still admire all her amazing knowledge. Aw, ditto. <laughs> my female botanist hero. Oh, thanks. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, we get to learn from each other all the time. It's mm -hmm. really wonderful, and I'm so excited that we're collaborating more and more these days. Definitely. I'm really excited for our school next year. <laughs> yeah, and so that is going to play into this next question, which is, why do you forage? Well, I think... I don't know exactly why, once I started foraging, I wanted to be able to be self-sufficient if, you know, civilization failed. That was my big motivation, <laughs> just to be straight up. I was like, what if you can't go to the grocery store? You know that most grocery stores only have enough food for three days, like, in them. And it's it's just insane. And I got super involved in, you know, anarcho-primitivism and a lot of alternative kind of political stuff when I was in my early 20s. And that was really the, the philosophical aspect of it and living where we do where there is abundant plant life mm -hmm. and it's not necessarily you know harmful to the environment to sustainably harvest things it's just a great free way to get really nutritious wonderful food and to 
reconnect with my land base. So that's really why, I, why you know, like why I forage, and also because I love teaching people how to forage, yeah. and I think that's kind of why we decided to start this school because not only do we both of us love to forage food and love to cook and make recipes and stuff, but we both love um, my expertise is in Appalachian folk medicine and the folklore of plants. And you are an amazing medicine maker and have like a stronger, like clinical herbalist background and like more technical herbalist background, which I don't have. And so our powers combined, we're usually able to create a really great synthesis of hands-on and historical and, um, practical application of wildcrafting. And that's what the Sassafras school is going to really be about. And that's why we called it the Sassafras school of Appalachian plant craft, because not only can you eat and make medicine from plants, but you can also make things out of them. And that's what we're going to be teaching basket making and spoon carving and implement creation with foraged materials. And I think to me, some of that stuff is deeply reconnective. Mm-hmm. It's also just really fun. Like, yeah. Simply, it's actually just really fun. Yeah, I know. I'm excited to make yeah. those things. Too. <laughs> I know, too. Even though I make them all the time, I'm like, when can I carve a spoon? I just need time. Yeah. <laughs> that's a great excuse. So that's that's really why I think is... When I see someone discover, and I'm sure you can relate to this, like when you see someone who's never really been in a wild space experience picking and eating a food for the first time or drinking a tea they've made and the, like the light that fills their eyes, like it's, it is something that all of us desperately like need, even if we don't know it, I think personally, that reconnection with, and I hate to say nature because it puts it outside of ourselves because we are part of nature. Mm -hmm. We've just done a great job of creating a delusion that we're separate. And that's yeah. where I think our work kind of comes in as teachers is to show people the magic of foraging and like philosophically what it can do for you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're going to make me cry. <laughs> oh my God. So you just sorry. put into words everything in my heart. <laughs> oh. Well, it's like if anybody listens to your first episode, you can hear it's like what most of us are driven by in our world, I think. And everybody has different gifts. Some people don't like teaching and that's yeah. fine. They could be great writers yeah. or great at making YouTube videos or, Mm -hmm. you know, just doing their thing and living their life. But I do think people are so hungry for this knowledge (laughs) metaphorically and physically. And, um, I think it's great that we can rise to meet the occasion. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay. So in your opinion, what do you consider ethical foraging? That's a super complex question, especially today. In America, things are getting super zesty. <laughs> Some issues, especially, you know, I am a white European ancestry person living in um, North America and occupied land, you know, and it's, some people have said like, nobody should wildcraft anything because the land is too broken. And some people say only indigenous people should wildcraft things and anybody else should not. And I think there's like in some ecosystems, like in the desert where there's very little water and systems are more sensitive, maybe that is the best choice. Um, and I don't know the answers, but I think for me, ethical foraging is going out season after season and seeing the place where you harvest is thriving and not declining. And we know there's lots of, you know, both of us use different, like, oh, take 20 or 30%, leave, you know, 70 or 80%. Those are things that are thrown around a lot in foraging. And I think they're good rules of thumb, but it also depends on the plant. And, um, but the coolest thing is if we're talking about 
colonialism versus native things. There's so many invasive quote unquote plants in Appalachia. We could only forage those plants and we would be like completely fat and happy. Do you know what I mean? Like we would be fine. Yeah. There's such an abundance of like chickweed and bittercress and kudzu and all these invasives that are really nourishing. Mm -hmm. So I think it's all about looking at the, the whole picture, being wise seasonality looking season after season and returning to spots that you kind of tend Mm -hmm. and um i think that that book braiding sweetgrass really speaks well to this kind of philosophy uh, philosophy which i recommend you read if you haven't me too that's Mm -hmm. one of my favorite books yeah we should put a link to it in the yeah we'll put a link to it definitely and um yeah that's that's kind of what i think ethical foraging is and like i said i don't have all the answers. And I think it's dependent on your bioregion. And a lot of people try to say everywhere should do this or nowhere should do this. And that's just not bioregionalism or like the sinking into a specific place outside of human dictates. That's kind Mm -hmm. of the definition, I guess, of of bioregionalism. So not a state, but like the mesic forests of, you know, what is now called North Carolina. So yeah, that kind of thing. That's kind of where I, I come to from it at least. Awesome. That was such a great explanation. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So what is one of your favorite plants or mushrooms to forage and why? Well, this one, everyone always goes, I bet I know what it is. (laughs) And I'm like, ha ha, you can read. It's my my website, bloodandspicebush.com. I love spicebush. It was the I don't know if it was the first, but I think it's a strong contender. I think it was the first wild plant I ever was taught had a use that I could like participate with Mm -hmm. when I was studying medieval history up in at Bard College in upstate New York. And I took an archaeology class and our teacher was teaching us a lot about um, Mohawk nation uses of plants that we'd randomly come across. He would just like casually drop like, oh, they use this for that. And I remember the first time still, and I don't have a lot of memories from those days, let's be real, when I was 18, um, that I snapped a branch of it and smelled it, and it was probably May, so the leaves were really tender Mm -hmm. and all out, and I ate a leaf of it, he he ate one, and I ate one after he did, the teacher, and I was like, oh my god, this is like a smell that can happen in nature, like the smell of spice, which is spicy, lemony cinnamony, uh, I get an orange peel, black pepper, kind of a solid mm. smell. It depends on, Yeah, I think I've heard a lot of people describe different things, but Lysol I've gotten, <laughs> right. I, I think that's a bit harsh, but it's, it's my favorite plant to forage because of its like history. I think it's pretty cool. It's used for so many different things, you know, called fever bush by colonists as a tea, twig tea for fevers and the berries, you know, were called poor man's allspice and used as a substitute for allspice and cinnamon and colonial baking and things and there's the twig tea you know we know that indigenous people used it to soften game meat and they used it as a tonic it eventually became part of the Appalachian tonic tradition which I'm super interested in and teach a class on Hmm. um, in Appalachian folk medicine and these kind of blood builders so that's why my website and my business is called blood and spice but speaking to that tradition of self-care in Appalachia. Yeah. yeah. And I think that I love spicebush for that reason because it's abundant. It's native. And the laurel ACA family plant, we all love, you know, like sassafras, my, one of my other favorite shrubby trees. And yeah, I love making um, forest chai with the 
spice bush and you actually inspired me to do that because you Aww. when we were first friends brought over a huge thing of tea and you were like this is my chai that i make or what you, i think you called it like winter chai. appalachian, appalachian chai, chai. <laughs> yeah appalachian <laughs> there's a local company called that so i guess we can't say that but um, <laughs> yeah. with sassafras and birch and spice bush and you had hemlock in it i think too uh carolina allspice carolina allspice yeah, yeah maybe some hemlock calicanthus also. yeah mm. i think you had a little bit of pine or something and it was really good and i was like oh my gosh thank but you. i like to make a tea of the twig of spice bush the twig of um or root of sassafras mm-hmm. a little bit of i put a little bit of hemlock in mine or Virginia pine, which we have a lot of on oh, our property. Yeah. I love that. And steep those all for like 15 to 20 minutes and then add a little coconut milk and maple syrup oh, and shake yeah. it real good. And that's that one of my awesome. favorite things. Yeah. Such a fun winter beverage. Yes, definitely. And we will have the recipe for that from Becky in the notes. So make sure you look for that after the show. Okay. Well, I just learned some stuff about Spice Bush that I didn't know. Really? So thanks for that. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. I didn't know about the fever. That's super cool. Yeah. They call it fever bush. It's diaphoretic. My wow. Yeah. Diaphoretic. Abby, well, I think we should define <laughs> diaphoretic. What does that mean? <laughs> um, a diaphoretic is, to put it super basically, is that when you ingest it, it makes you sweat. And that can be helpful for things like fevers. And because in, in our modern American culture, the way that people tend to address fevers is how can we bring it down immediately? But your fever is actually your body trying to do a job. And oftentimes it's ridding you of an infection. And so if you bring down that fever too fast, then it will stop your body from doing that job and can actually make you sicker for longer. So we want to just support the body to do that. So when you make the body sweat or help the body to sweat, then it can sweat out those toxins and help to actually get rid of the cause instead of just the symptoms. So it's pretty cool. And I had always kind of intuited that because it is a warming aromatic herb. Mm-hmm. A lot of other warming aromatic herbs have similar actions. I think about the doctrine of signatures too, where when a plant looks like something, it does that thing. It's yeah. an old medieval um, notion about how to use different plants. And the berries we know are bright red. Mm-hmm. And I think of, and I was talking about this with a student the other day, that um, if you have pale skin, when you get a... Um, fever, your face will turn bright red often. So this is a little bit like white centric because if you have dark skin, your face won't necessarily turn red. But I would say, well, if it feels like, you know, the mercury is rising in the temperature, the thermometer, that red little line, that's always red. So that seems better to use that comparison. Um, But, you know, that hot feeling in the face, like is usually a good time, like indication for me to have a cup of spice fish decoction or boiled twig tea. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, I also have used it as a broth base in bear stews and Ooh, game meat stews. And nice. I learned that from my friend Jillian, who works with us, who yeah. used to work with us at um, No Taste Like Home. And yeah, adding it to soups and stews, it's got that lemony flavor. So it kind of goes in the oh. same flavor profile as vinegar. You can add it to sauces and stews. That's so cool. So how Definitely. would you do that? Would you mm-hmm. add the twigs in as you're cooking your stock, like making your stock base? Definitely. Yeah, or adding a few berries, or even mm-hmm. like when we've ground up the berries and use them at the end, 
you can simmer them in the, um, the, the roux or a broth base that you're making. And then I, I like to use the twigs though, cause the berries do have a strong peppery taste. Mm-hmm. So they're better, I think, added afterwards to taste. Cool. Personally, yeah. And I've made little muffins and treats with them as well. They have a really unique, very orange peel like flavor. Yeah. I feel, I don't know what you, what you feel about that, but as long as they're not big chunks, I've learned my lesson. <laughs> You're really going to yeah. use little bits. Yeah. <laughs> it's like too much nutmeg. It's great in a little mm-hmm. bit, but like a little overpowering otherwise. Yeah. I really like the allspice kind of taste of it. And so I, um, will combine it with other pumpkin spice herbs mm-hmm. and make, uh, basically my own pumpkin spice latte with it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Hopefully I won't get in trouble. I'm sure that's trademarked, but <laughs> the juniper latte at Starbucks right now is going wild. And I'm like, well, we have spice bush lattes and we're, no, we're not giving you the recipe. <laughs> just that's kidding. Right. Starbucks, just, but we'll give them to you guys. Yes, mm-hmm. we will. But yeah, I always, um, add the least amount of spice bush berry, in the ratio to the other herbs like ginger and cinnamon, because it is a very strong flavor. Mm-hmm. I think of it like equivalent to the way you add nutmeg to things. Mm-hmm. Cause nutmeg is actually, can make you, make you sick if you add too much of it yeah. to stuff. Um, and so if I'm adding an amount of nutmeg to something, I can substitute that for spice bush. Oh. And that's how I kind of look at it. Cause it, it has like a similar proportion Smart. unless it's ground much more coarsely. Yeah. Then obviously you don't add too much cause it's big chunks. <laughs> Cool. Well, do you have any tips you can offer about how to harvest spice bush? Yeah. One thing I love about it is that you can harvest it all year round, which is yeah. one of our fun classes. Uh, we teach in, um, in January every year, usually. Well, last year we did it. Let's make it a tradition mm-hmm. uh, called bark eaters where we teach about, you know, edible medicinal trees. And even though it's a shrub, it definitely is part of our <laughs> Roundup, and it's easy to identify in the winter because it has what we like to refer to as nubulins. Those little. <laughs> oh, Becky likes <laughs> let, me, let me just apply this term to you, also, Abby. These little, um, little buds that are like little, like green balls on the branches, and the little white polka dots on the bark, and then, of mm-hmm. course the the smell, the scratch and sniff. Yeah, <laughs> in the winter, and so the shrubby uh, little white polka dots and the little green unopened buds because it also flowers in the very uh, early spring, late winter. And it's a fun way to identify it too in February when it's little spidery yellow flowers come out. It's one of the first colors to, to grace our Appalachian mountain coves. Um, so I like to look for it when it doesn't have any leaves on it and just take pruners and take some um, smaller branches from the outside. And usually I find it in a stand. So mm-hmm. it's easy to harvest like a good bit of it without, yeah, it's kind of like pruning back, you know, what, yeah. what might be growing out into the past or things like that. Cool. That's great. Yeah. And that's, that's how I like to harvest it too. Instead of harvesting bark, which would actually be kind of hard to do on a spice bush mm-hmm. because they don't get very, the, the trunk itself does not get very wide. So it's a lot easier to just prune the branches and it's less invasive to the bush as well. Yeah, and I like to prune them right up against the main branch so I don't leave little dead bits sticking out. Mm. Um, and make sure to, you know, if I'm in there and I see a bunch of dead branches too, I try to clear them out a little bit, you know, cool. give them a little makeover. And um, in the fall, then, of course, I love to get the the berries. And if you grab, 
your hand and run it along the stalk and kind of grab handfuls of the berries and hold your basket right under it, I found that to be the fastest way to harvest them because mm. sometimes they're very prolific. Yeah. As you know, they get a whole bunch of them and they fall as you're picking them. Mm-hmm. But I also think like you're planting some, you're yeah. harvesting some. So I don't worry too much about dropping them. It's fine. And the birds will eat them as well. Yeah. And then how do you process the twigs? How do you preserve them? Mm-hmm. The twigs, I you can dry twig, but because it is so abundant and available in the winter, I don't often store it. Mm-hmm. But and I have tried drying the leaf for tea, and I was told it's like loses all its taste and is like not a good tea plant. But mm-hmm. it's I found that the dried leaves, if steeped and not boiled, were totally nice. Yeah, in me dry too. tea. Have you found mm-hmm. that? Yeah, I found the same thing. I really go for the berries though mm-hmm. for preserving, and I have actually a recipe and a video about how to make spice bush honey on my website, which I'll put a link oh, to. Oh, awesome! Yeah, that'd be great. Mm-hmm. And more information too about the history of the plant. That's awesome. Which I'm just all about the spice bush. <laughs> Yay. Well, it's one of my favorites too. Um, okay. Well, that's a lot of great spice bush information. So the next question is, what is your region like? We live in the same region, but I love hearing how each person describes it because we probably all describe it a little differently depending on what our connection is mm-hmm. and the micro region that we live in. That's so true. Well, we, I definitely think of our region, you know, we live in um, Southern Appalachia. So we live in a place of a variety of microclimates and there's a great book called plant communities mm-hmm. that I really enjoy by I think Timothy Spira, I think is the author. And, yeah, we'll put a link to that too. Yeah, and he's just fantastic. I've been really learning a lot more. We have all types of microclimates from the Heathbald, where we go up to harvest blueberries, and the Ericaceae family plants that we love mm-hmm. on these kind of cold, almost alpine plant communities. Yeah. And then we have deep mesic cove forests, where, and a mesic just means moist, you know, I think of it like that, where we have mixed hardwoods and the oak hickory complexes and a lot of amazing communities of animals, plants, um, lichens, ferns, and uh, amphibians, because we are the most, we have the most amphibians of anywhere in the world here, I think, in the world, at least in the U.S., Yeah, um, with salamanders specifically, mm-hmm. which I love. I have a huge <laughs> salamander tattooed across my shoulders. So I love salamanders, <laughs> but um, I think of it like that. And then just, you know, metaphysically even, our region is such a unique hodgepodge of cultures because contrary to popular belief, Appalachia is not just full of Scottish people screaming with kilts into the wilderness. It is <laughs> a pretty diverse cultural um, history of, you know, indigenous people like the Cherokee, the Catawba, and a lot of other smaller nations, you know, people who are brought here from West Africa with the slave trade, and then English, Irish, Scottish, Welsh, German, mm-hmm. and a lot of other smaller European countries all coming together, whether by force or by famine or by moving here on purpose and, and colonizing to create the way we look at the plants that we interact with here. Yeah. And like, how do we know what the uses are? It's because of all these people mm-hmm. and their unique experiences with these plants and the hardships and joys that they went through to learn them themselves. So I think about our region in two ways, the physical nature of it you know, the rugged topography and then the cultural topography mm-hmm. of what came to create the stories of the plants, which is what I love. Yeah. So that's kind of how I think about Appalachia. I think that's why I love it so much. <laughs> it's also one of the oldest mountain chains in the world, which is 
I don't know if you can, if you identify with this feeling, but whenever I'm out alone foraging, like somewhere, especially in the Big Ivy National Forest or somewhere more wild, Mm -hmm. not like one of our more public park areas, there is a feeling of like intense ancientness. (laughs) It's like different than foraging in other places. Yes. And it's not better or worse. It's just different. Yeah. And we have the French Broad River too, which is the third oldest river in the world. And that's pretty spectacular as well. So we have Mm -hmm. these two ancient old kind of spooky energies that are the backdrop of our work with this land and the history of this land. And that to me defines the region just as much as what plant lives next to what plant and why. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. And that is one thing I really love about talking to you is that you always remind me and everyone you teach about that cultural topography here. And it's so important. And a lot of us forget about that or forget to teach about it or include it. And it is so important. You know, it is a melting pot and it's a beautiful melting pot. It is. And I think it's so cool too, to be able to say, Oh wow. It's so neat that we know this piece of plant lore came from this use. Um, yeah, like I just learned our plant, one of our favorite plants, Pipsisoa, um, that everyone was trying to figure out what it meant. What does Pipsisoa mean? Yeah. And I, I can't remember the name of the nation, but it means to break apart or like to make something not whole. Oh, and it was wow. used in urinary tract medicine. So right. I think that's really cool. And, you know, some of that information gets lost because of mm-hmm. the complex factors of, of history. And it's, it's really cool to rediscover it and then change it. Or, you know, my friend who speaks Cherokee just told me that, you know, my talkie is Wishi in Cherokee and that we should all be teaching people how to say the names of the plants in the way they were taught originally Yes, <laughs> and mushrooms as well, which Definitely. I think is so cool. It is mm-hmm. very cool. Yeah. You just reminded me of, <laughs> because I love telling stories because I feel like the stories connect us mm-hmm. and it's a lot easier for people to remember those plants and mushrooms if they have a story to go with it. I agree a hundred percent. Yeah. But I was just remembering, um, that time when we went out and you were doing a walk with me and I think it was in the beginning when we, before the walk, when we were scouting it out and oh, I know, yeah. <laughs> it was also at the place where afterwards we were going to go and harvest some chestnut oak acorns and right before the spot where we were going to harvest those we started walking towards a fork in the path and there was a bear sitting in the middle of the path I remember that she was sitting like a person (laughs) she had her feet kind of holding herself up and she was just like looking out into the Woods kind of just like having her, I think you were like, oh, look, she's having her morning meditation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she's just hanging out. Yeah. Contemplating life, looking out into the woods. Yeah. She definitely got scared by us though, for sure. <laughs> yeah. But that's the kind of magic that happens all the time when you do this. Mm-hmm. And I love that magic. Definitely. I think it's like what people talk about, like trail magic when they're doing the AT. Mm-hmm. But we, it kind of happens all the time. Or it's like when you're driving and you look you're like, oh, the side of the road, I have to stop because there's, there's some lobster mushrooms or yeah. there's a, you know, a huge chicken in the woods hanging off of this stump. So, yeah, it's really tough to date a forager. You have to, like, <laughs> st- you have to stop a lot. <laughs> That's for sure. Or be the child of a forager. Oh, yeah. 
Come on. Yep. Happens all the time. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Okay. What are some tips that you can offer beginning foragers? So I definitely, because I didn't have a really like linear education in foraging, I feel like I made a lot of the mistakes that I try to warn people about now that I am a more knowledgeable person, but still learning so much. Um, I think it's really good to learn from a real person and not try to learn from books. And mm-hmm. this is something we drive home in our forging tour company because like internet dating pictures can be deceiving. <laughs> so I know for sure I've seen so many images mislabeled and there's just no yes. accountability. So if you Google a plant, somebody could have gotten it wrong. Mm-hmm. And um, when you're working with an expert or a person in real life, it's just a much safer and complete way to get the whole story behind a plant and its ID or especially a mushroom and its ID. And then I would say too, there are some great books, but use books for like processing and harvesting ideas. Mm. Use a person for, you know, the ID, the botany, the um, mycology. So that's kind of what I came to. Also, always double check your friend's work. I was accidentally, here's a good story. I accidentally ate dog bane once, which what? is, I know. Did I tell you this? No. I, my first, um, intern I ever had when I was 25. So it's kind of funny that a 25 year old would have an intern, but I had some people helping me on my property and one of them had done a year long, you know, wilderness immersion and had foraged some stuff for dinner. And I just threw it into the soup and didn't look at it. And I took one spoonful of that soup and it was so bitter. It tasted like eating a mouthful of dirt. <laughs> and I was looking at everything. I was like, did the pepper go bad? Like what? Cause I just put some spices in it and I was like, oh, maybe they're moldy. Like what's going on? And my friend tasted it and he was like, oh, this tastes terrible. What is this? And then we're like, show us where you got the milkweed that we put oh. in the soup. And we realized milkweed and dogbane are classically mistaken for each other, yeah. which once you're shown them, by a real person, you will know they're totally different looking. But if you've never seen them before, and he had come from Wisconsin and had not seen it before, oh. that it was not milkweed. And same family, you know, same milky latex. But it is it is toxic, and it's not deadly to the extent I think people fear. But I had no symptoms. I only ate a few spoonfuls of it. But it tasted so bad. I was like, okay. <laughs> And they all, you know, people believe that Yule Gibbons maybe mistakenly was eating dogbane species. And that's why he said you have to boil milkweed a bunch to eat uh-huh. it. Because if you ever eat milkweed, it's delicious. Like you don't want to yeah. boil it and ruin its flavor. Definitely want to cook it thoroughly. But I think it's so funny. Like I always check people's work now. Even my apprentices mm-hmm. had five apprentices this year. Many of them are super competent foragers now. I still check their work because I do not want to eat dogbane again. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so make sure... When you're beginning your foraging journey, if you're eating something someone else foraged, that you also like double check it yourself. Yeah, that's great advice. <laughs> <laughs> Learn from our mistakes. We've done yeah, this, so you don't have to. Definitely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, is there anything else you want to share that you think is important for us to know about you, what you're doing, or foraging in general? I think that one thing I love about foraging is that you don't have to be a scientist to be a good forager. Yeah. Our, you know, our ancestors did not know lots about big words or science (laughs) or plant part names, and they still did a great job of foraging. And I think that's why I love um, folk herbalism and, and folk uses of plants so much, because like you said, using stories to remember plants is like such a good way to cement them in your experience and in your knowledge. 
So I would just say the one thing that I think is important is just don't be afraid to like think that you are totally capable of foraging um, with the right education and tools. So don't be afraid. <laughs> that's great. That's a, that's a good reminder too. Mm-hmm. I like to tell people that as well. Oh, definitely. Okay. So if people want to find out more about what you're doing or take a class from you, what's the best way for them to find you? Uh, just go to my website at www.bloodandspicebush.com or check out Abby and I's website at www.sassafras-school.com for information about our 2019 program, our six-month program meeting every Tuesday from 10 to 4. And we still have a few more spaces left in that, so we're pretty excited about it. Let's fill her up. Yeah, <laughs> let's do it. All right. Well, Becky, it was a pleasure. Oh, thanks, Abby. <laughs> Thank you. To get a chance to talk with you. Always. Yeah. And I always learn something for you. So from you. Ditto. So. <laughs> thanks so much for being on. Well, thank you. I'll see you soon. Okay. Happy foraging. Happy foraging. <laughs> thanks for listening to this episode of Wander, Forage, and Wildcraft. Don't forget to check the show notes for all of the links from today's episode. Thanks so much to Tina and her pony for the use of their beautiful song, Medicine. I love hearing from all of you, so please leave me your comments. And if you like what you've heard, please rate and review this podcast and share with folks you know. You can keep learning and following my adventures on thewanderschool.com and the Wanderschool Facebook and Instagram pages. Happy wandering, foraging, and wildcrafting. Come on, everyone, and gather around. Listen to the soothing in this sound. I'm here to tell you that medicine don't come from a pill, it grows in the ground. The medicine.